All right, thank you all for joining today. Today we are talking about the 31 executive functions of the MEFs. This is a assessment tool um, that is written by Dr. McCloskey um, with the help of Dr. Uh, Dean as well. Dr. Dean, you did more like the report writer part of it, right? Right, I'm officially the publisher of it, uh, collaborated with George on it. Uh, exactly, okay. Glad, glad that I did, it's a pretty huge scale as we hear. All right, so just to tell you a little bit about Dr. McCloskey, he has accumulated a broad range of work experiences in the field of psychology over the last 25 years. He's been involved in teaching undergraduate, graduate courses, as well as presenting at national, international professional associations, research and test development in both university and corporate settings, and administration and supervision in clinical, university, and business settings. Prior to completing his training in school psychology, he worked as a paraprofessional in minimum security prisons and community health, community mental health settings. His experience in the field as a school psychologist included interning at the Lancaster City Schools, working for full-time for Florida public schools, time for state area schools in Pennsylvania. From 2003 to 2007, Dr. McCloskey was the director of the SPARC, which is the School Psychologist Adopting Refined Knowledge Project for the New York City Department of Education. This program involved coordinating and providing in-service training activities for more than 1,200 school psychologists and 30 supervisors employed by the New York City School Department of Education. In 2009, Dr. McCloskey became the, a consultant to the School District of Philadelphia to assist with updating the skills for more than 100 school psychologists employed by the School District of Philadelphia. As, as a freelance development specialist, he has contributed to the writing of the narrative content and program logic for the WISC-3 Writer, a report writing software program, and during the 1992, 19, during 1992 to 1994, as a consultant to the Pennsylvania Department of Education's Instructional Support Team Project, Dr. McCloskey provided research design and data analysis services to analyze the results of statewide support program effectiveness studies that were the precursors to the current RTI movement. In 1993, Dr. McCloskey took a position as a clinical measurement consultant for the Psychological Corporation, providing consultative and training services throughout the Northeast region. Throughout this period, Dr. McCloskey frequently was also called on to assist with test development activities in the 2000, and in 2001, he accepted a position as senior research director in the test development department of the psychological corporation in that capacity he has assisted with the development of the wetchler preschool primary scales of intelligence three the wetchler intelligence scale for children four and directed the development of the WISC 5 integrated as well as helped blueprint the revision of the WIPC 3 so if any of y'all want to know who writes these tests that you give this is your guy. This is him. We're meeting one of those people. Dr. McCloskey's areas of research include cognition and cognitive neuropsychology and the relationship of these fields to learning in the class and classroom instruction. 
psychological and educational assessment, and the link between assessment and intervention of particular interests are the role of executive functions in learning and production and interventions to increase student self-regulation capacities, reading assessment and instruction, system-wide educational change, memory process and classroom learning, and the assessment methodology and psychometric properties of assessment techniques. Dr. McCloskey has authored and co-authored two books on executive functions and several book chapters and journal articles on executive functions and on the cognitive and educational assessment issues. He is the lead author of a recently published book, Assessment and Intervention for the Executive Function and Dif Difficulties, and the author of Essential, Essentials of Executive Functions Assessment. And I, this is somebody who has thought a lot more than anybody else that I think than about executive functions. So um, we've been on a long trip, Dr. McCloskey, to learn more about executive functions. We, I think we've had um, about three already clubhouses in here um, on this topic. And so we're really, really grateful just to have made it down this path and to talk to the person that has thought about it the most, I think. <laughs> so Dr. Dean um, is going to... Uh, here to tell us about the most recent work uh, by Dr. McCloskey is Dr. Dean, and Dr. Dean has led a previous clubhouse on the basic concepts of executive functions. So if you haven't heard that, you should go back and listen for a refresher. Uh, in addition to working as a school psychologist and helping produce assessment tools, uh, he helps to produce assessment tools and develop assessment practices. Dr. Dean is the co-founder of Schoolhouse Psychological Services and Schoolhouse Tutoring in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And he has worked with Dr. McCloskey on the publication of this latest work, The MEFS, the McCloskey Executive Function Scale. So Dr. McCloskey, if you wanna just, sorry, Dr. Dean, if you'd wanna just tell us a little bit about this scale um, and, and um, think just any of the characteristics that you wanna share with us. Well, what makes it most unique and exciting is that it divides executive functions up not only into 31 specific self-regulation, which is more than any other and makes it an in-depth scale right up front, but it also divides it into the academic side versus the social and personal side. For example, children with autism will often be different on the social side of executive functions than they are on the academic. But of course, those distinctions apply to anyone. But the other exciting thing about it, and he's going to talk about this, is that it um, it breaks executive functions into uh, knowing how to do it, that's the skill part of it, and knowing when to do it, such as you recognize that now it's time to planful and generate a plan, but the planning part is the knowing how or the skill. And so those, I think, really have an impact not only on a deeper understanding of the child, but where to go more specifically in terms of helping the child with accommodations and also with interventions. And that's why I'm excited about it. And it's not just for school psychologists. We have speech and language pathologists are using it, especially with their autism students. And as I've said many times when I presented in Texas that uh, educational diagnosticians with uh, the review of these materials are qualified to uh, administer and interpret uh, rating scales. And rating scales are, as I've argued before, just as valid as direct 
performance-based assessments of executive functions. And with that, I'll turn it over to George. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Milt. I appreciate that. And uh, uh, thanks so much for that long introduction, Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't forgotten all that stuff, but it was nice. It was nice just reviewing it. Um, and the executive function part, you know, in, in 1994, I, I had the opportunity to meet Edith Kaplan and Ursula Kirk, and who were on the cutting edge of developing measures for executive function. And, you know, now it, it, in, the, in uh, you know, 2022 here, we're really kind of getting on board with what executive functions are and, and a lot more about how to assess them. But at the time, we really, field of school psychology, we're really just kind of learning about this, and, and as was uh, most of the field of psychology. And I did have the opportunity to work with uh, Dr. Kaplan over about 15 years uh, period of time and was, uh, I ended up presenting with her at a number of conferences and, uh, and summer institutes on the Cape. And I just, you know, that's where I really learned a lot about executive functions and developed my interest in really um, understanding and refining the, the concept and, and appreciating how it adds to what we have to do in the way of assessment. You know, we look at our, in, our individualized assessments that we give, and very often the scores really do not reflect some of these difficulties that individual have, individuals have with executive functions and their lack of production on the things that they've learned or the abilities that they have. So you can have kids that get 140 IQs, but actually sit in the classroom and don't do anything unless they're told. And teachers are just, you know, kind of uh, baffled by the fact that we've got individuals with such capabilities and, and good academic scores, and yet such a lack of production in the classroom or an inability to complete assignments or or to really understand and take tests in a classroom situation. So this has really kind of driven my interest in helping to understand and characterize a lot more accurately these kind of kids that have difficulties with executive control and, and don't really necessarily have difficulties with the other areas, although you may you may have problems in those areas too. But this is really something very different than what we've we've been traditionally assessing in the past. And it's really important that we that we do take a look at this. And I think educational diagnosticians are really well positioned to do some of this assessment uh, because whether you're uh, you know uh, whether you're writing intervention programs or, or doing the assessment components it's important to understand where, where these producing difficulties come from and I do make the distinction between learning disabilities and producing difficulties or producing disabilities which are more executive function related and I know you know we've always been very focused on learning disability identification and, and writing educational plans for students that have disabilities, but we often forget about this executive function component uh, that when it's, when it's present, you know, we have learning and producing difficulties. The IEP should really be addressing both because it's not enough for us to remediate some difficulties like phonological deficits that create decoding problems and strengthen individuals' ability to learn how to read. But if we don't address these executive function difficulties, we often find that our intervention efforts are inconsistent at best. You know, we, we do progress monitoring and scores go up and down and all over the place because that lack of consistency is related to that inability to uh, to access and use your executive functions, you know, in a way that enables you to be consistently producing. All right. I was going to get your link from your from your PowerPoint and put it in the chat, but I'll do that. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of information in that PowerPoint would kind of give a, some context for how to use the scale and how to think about it. Mm -hmm. So if you get a referral and you see characteristics in the referral, what are the things that jump out at you that as an evaluator to say that you would want to make sure to use this tool? Um, I think whenever you have issues related to attention, um, is related to lack of engagement, you know, lack of initiating efforts. Um, when you have individual, what teachers say, there's a lack of flexibility, there's a lack of ability to kind of shift from one thing to another, um, inability to stop ongoing activity. 
uh, those kinds of statements that teachers will make. In fact, if you look through the mess and, and look at the items, you know, you often see uh, those items on the mess reflecting these kinds of statements that teachers and parents, you know, offer in the way of, uh, of difficulties that they observe students. So, you know, like in, even, even though they seem to have a high IQ, uh, they seem not to know when to apply that problem solving skill that they have. Uh, to solve a problem unless they're prompted to do so. And that's that executive function deficit, the when. They don't know when to do the things that they know how to do. And then there are some students that just don't even know how. <laughs> uh, and we have to step back and teach them how. But so the scale kind of differentiates that. But these kinds of things, you know, we're talking about the the um, uh, the lack of monitoring for, for accuracy of, of responses, um, uh, not correcting errors when they find them, um, lack of planning, lack of organization, um, these are all, these are all factors on inability to kind of manage your memory. Um, you know, you have a lot of good information in there, but it seems difficult for you to, to retrieve the information that you need, um, you know, without, without giving lots of other information as well. So these are, and, and just using routines, knowing how to take tests, um, knowing how to study for a test. These are all aspects of executive control that, um, that parents and teachers very often say, uh, in referrals, you know, there, there are these difficulties. And we then give achievement tests and intelligence tests and come back and say, well, your IQ is 120 and your achievement scores are all in the, you know, 60th percentile, 70th percentile and above. And then we say, we don't know why they're having those problems. <laughs> um, and so the executive function component kind of says, well, this, these are specific problems, you know, that you're recognizing here, independent of the IQ and independent of the achievement test results that you're getting that are going to impact the individual when they are in a classroom situation or in social situations. If, you know, if that, if those uh, things we just talked about are more of a problem related to managing yourself or managing yourself in social situations, you know, then, then you're going to see that on this scale. And so then we realize these, this is a separate domain that we should be assessing and addressing the difficulties in this area because our other tests don't necessarily uh, reflect these problems. Uh, they, they can affect other test results, but they don't necessarily always do because when we give standardized uh, assessments the way you do as an educational diagnostician, we provide standardized direction that tell the individual what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And if they don't get it right the first time, we, do, we have teaching items. So we make sure that you know what we want you to do and how we want you to do it. And of course, that can mask those executive function difficulties because for that period of time when you're testing, you are the student's executive functions because you're guiding that. You have to think of it as the supervisory system of the brain. You become the supervisory system of that child's brain. And then those workers, you know, all the parts of the brain that, that respond to the supervisory system are the workers. And so you're basically directing the student's workers <laughs> and they can have some pretty good workers and you can get really good scores. The problem is when they leave the test assessment situation and walk back into the classroom, um, the workers are there, but the supervisory system that you provided isn't. And so it's strengthening that supervisory system that we're talking about when we identify executive function deficits and say we need separate uh, educational goals you know, to address that. Wow. So that, that was definitely a lot to consider when, uh, I mean, lots of kids could benefit from this. I, I picture our reports sort of changing and there being, you know, your IQ section, your achievement section, and your executive function section. Yes, um, I, I, I agree 100%. Um, uh, Nancy Mather uh, and, uh, and Joffe, um, Lauren Joffe, they, they did a manual call. It was a compendium of psychological reports. And it was sort of like, a, here's, here's an example of the kinds of reports that, you know, a psychologist out there are writing that are kind of exemplify some pretty good practice. And of the reports within that, in that, um, in that manual, which was published about uh, about ten years ago, 
uh, only 29% of the assessment even looked at executive functions, and less than 20% of them made recommendations for how to deal with executive function problems. So it's obviously, you know, not something that we always think about and consider as a separate area uh, for uh, for assessment, but it certainly is. And educational diagnosticians, you know, this isn't just like something psychologists should be looking at. Um, as Dr. Dean had mentioned, you know, speech therapists, OTs and PTs, educational diagnosticians, psychologists, social workers, I think we all need to understand executive functions and how they impact uh, students, you know, ability to learn and, and to produce in classrooms uh, and, and in social situations as well. And if we if and, and interventions could be, you know, provided by any number of individuals, not just uh, psychologists. Right. So I, I know we have um, in our reports an adaptive behavior section and people usually just put yes. some standard. Oh, well, they know how to go to the bathroom and and put food in their mouth and that right. kind of thing. And I'm like, no, they're students. They need like study skills. We need to write. Do they raise their hand? Do they volunteer to speak? Do they hand in their homework? Do they follow regular routines? So I always make sure to do that to get at least a, a teacher input form with those kinds of questions on it and put that in there. But a lot of times people are like, isn't that any any you know 10 year old boy he's just being a boy or something and you don't know really if that's typical for everybody or how untypical it is or or atypical i guess it is but you know that's why we need these tools for sure to tell us that and honestly i tell you like whenever i'm in a in an iep meeting with a parent and i get the teachers to really just talk about these things these are the things the teachers care about they they might not, they might know that a child is falling behind academically. They're okay. They can be okay with that. But if that child is not doing these executive functions in, in the classroom, that's where they, the teachers get so frustrated and um, they start telling, you know, st start reporting that, oh, the student's not doing well in class. They stand out more when it's these executive functioning um, skills that fall behind, I feel like. So... I want to ask one question. I did a little search on executive functioning tools, and there is another tool called the MEFS, but it's the Minnesota Executive Functioning Scale. I also know there's the Brief, the Connors, the Basque. So what's the, you know, is it just that this tool is the greatest benefit because it's more complete? Or what do you feel? Is there anything else that you feel like kind of adds to that? And um and not yeah. to use it with the with the Minnesota <laughs> executive functioning scale. Well, yeah, I, I think I'm you know I'm going to let Dr. Dean. Uh, yes, talk. Uh, we we had to examine that and, and yeah. figure out. Wait a minute, do we <laughs> are we uh, you know are we uh, we uh, using a name that's already been used, right? And Dr. Dean, you want to address that? Well, uh, it was actually we trademarked MEFs and they did not trademark it, but they thought they were entitled to it, but. Um, actually, um, Minnesota Executive Function Scale was developed on a grant at the University of Minnesota, and it's not a product that you can purchase and use to assess students. It's actually a free online, uh, rather brief scale. Uh, it's not the in-depth or diagnostic tool that we would be looking for. So it still comes up, although they admitted, um, you know, um, that we have the trademark and stopped challenging us, and uh, it was interesting. It also <laughs> Also stands for um, Middle East Fertility Society. So don't 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 click on that one either. <laughs> well, well right. now we're really going far afield on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. So there's really, but you're you're right. There are other elements out there. Most of them are um, either uh, somewhat truncated in the sense that there may be nine separate scales that they look at. Uh, I know the brief, you know, is up is up to nine now or eight or nine. 
Um, the, the Cephe has nine. Uh, there's the Dallas and there, and also Russ Barkley has his own too. So you're, we're seeing an explosion of growth in this area, you know, of, of scales that are available. And, you know, I, I think there's, they're well standardized. They're, they're good scales. I just don't think that they offer the conceptual framework that we're talking about here, um, you know, from a comprehensive perspective. And I think you, we didn't mention, you know, we mentioned self-regulation, but there's also that aspect of self-determination and self-realization. Uh, and I didn't go to the further, you know, first levels of self-generativity, which is morals and ethics and trans self-integration, which is that, you know, the ultimate metaphysical question of, is there a CEO? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and if there is one, you know, is it, do you answer to a higher power? You know, is CEO somewhere external to you? Or do you believe that uh, you just, it's just you and your thought processes, whatever the case may be. But, um, you know, there are different, these are different levels of consciousness that are reflected in frontal lobe function. And they do drive your behavior. You know, all these will line up, then you're, you're self-regulating day to day to meet your goals, but your goals should be aligned with your morals and your morals should be aligned with what you believe, you know, ultimately is the purpose of life. And so we're, we're discussing, you know, a, a real functional continuum here. And uh, within the scale, we thought, what, what can parents and teachers really respond to effectively? And um, we know that self-determination, self-realization, which kick in around age 10 to 14, are very important because they drive adolescent and um, you're going, to self, you're going to start trying to self-regulate in a way that's going to enable you uh, to achieve those goals that are self-determined. Uh, but that requires some self-realization that you may have some difficulties and might have to self-regulate differently in order to achieve those goals. So this is, uh, you know, the, this is all about adolescent frontal lobe development, explosion of growth in adolescence. And we need to capture that with a scale and understand, you know, if we've got an individual who's very deficient in terms of self-determination and self-realization, we, we have to work on those before we can start telling them they should self-regulate differently. You know, we have to show them how that self-regulating differently will help them to achieve something that they may want to achieve. And if they don't want to achieve anything, we got some work to do to help them, you know, develop that capacity to, uh, to look for, you know, we call it perspective memory, but it's really, you know, future thinking, you know, what are you going to do when you leave high school? You know, what what's this thing called the world of work and and how you fit into it and and that should drive how you self-regulate day to day so it's important to have a you know that kind of a conceptual framework and then we talk about the academic versus the self-social and the importance of making differentiations there uh, and then we talk about the knowing when and knowing how and the importance of making differentiations in terms of the degree of, of executive deficit that you have so our scale really you know offers these kinds of deeper uh, you know, uh, basic conceptual frameworks that enable us to really uh, drive the, the assessment and the intervention in, in, in the way that, you know, I've found to be the most effective, at least in, in the practice and the work that I've been doing in both assessment and inter intervention with individuals that have these difficulties. And, and Nazi, before we go on, though, I, I have to tell you, I, you, you know, that statement that you made about adaptive behavior is just so on target because you need to think of executive functions as the adaptive behavior for kids that aren't uh, in the intellectually disabled, you know, uh, uh, category. Although even intellectual disability, there you should be looking at these executive function components because I have found some individuals scoring below 70 that actually have some pretty good executive functions. They got a lot of good street smarts and they're very capable and they're actually very adaptive, even though they may have an IQ score in the 70s or below. And so it's really critical for us to look at this, but it really does kind of uh, exemplify adaptive behavior, especially at the upper ends of the range here where you don't suspect that there's any intellectual disability, and yet you see this lack of production. So you use the word 
holarchical is that yeah, holar- holarchical so yeah that's uh <laughs> that's uh arthur kessler in the 60s uh coined that phrase and ken wilber has used it in his writing on consciousness but it's it's the idea of of um you know we think we tend to think of development as hierarchical in nature and you go through stage one and now you're in stage two and stage one's done and now you're in two and then stage two is done now you're in stage three uh but the reality is you know you begin developing stage one self-regulation around age 10 to 14 stage two self-determination self-realization kicks in whether you're ready or not you start developing in those areas whether you're done developing at level one or not and so now you've got two levels of development going on at the same time so it's kind of a transcend and include concept of development where you know these these layers of development are going on uh at the same time and so you can be, some people are, can be better developed at the higher levels than the lower levels. Uh, you can be very self-determined, but not be able to self-regulate to achieve any of the goals that you set um, and be painfully aware of that fact. <laughs> so it's not, uh, you know, it's not that idea that, well, you, if you have level two problems, you don't have level one problems because you've cleared level one, but you never clear level one. It's continued to develop throughout your lifetime. And then stage two kicks in and starts developing and then stage three, stage four. And you can have all these stages of development going on in the same brain at the same time. And in in some individuals, you know, there's delayed development. Some stages don't start till later. Uh, So this holarchical model kind of helps to explain and helps to understand brain development and and certainly a a much richer way than a a simple hierarchy because it's not. It just doesn't work that way. So you're saying that what this test gives is a theory, basically, like... The CHC theory of cognition, this is like the executive function, the holarchical model of executive function theory, basically. And when you have a way to conceptualize around this, you can kind of think more about how these things work together. So I'm going to try and name, because I mean, this is the title of this is 31 executive functions. So I'm going to quickly see if I can name them all. So attending is perceiving, focusing, sustaining. Engaging appropriately is initiating, energizing, inhibiting, stopping, pausing, being flexible, and shifting. Monitoring and adjusting is monitoring, modulating, correcting, and balancing. Performing efficiently is sensing time, pace, using routines and sequencing. Managing memory is holding and working and storing and retrieving. Inquiring reflectively is gauging, anticipating, estimating, analyzing, evaluating, solving problems is generating, associating, organizing, planning, prioritizing, and deciding. And that's all for just the self-regulation ones. Those are in the bottom of the holarchical model. And then there are two self-realization and three self-determinations. Those are reflecting basically on how you're regulating and making goals, saying, I can do this. And then that is tier, next is the tier three, where you are self-generating, you're executing those goals, which brings you to the self, the trans self-integration, which is like a religion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's, it's stepping beyond yourself to uh, to consider your connection to something greater than yourself. You know, all the levels up to that point, self, self, self. And then at some mm-hmm. point you're able to reflect on the fact that you, you know, what is your connection to, uh, you know, to existence, to consciousness, to oneness with all, whatever the case may be. And very often for many people, spiritual experience, um, you know, r- r- uh, surveys here in the United States say that 95% of individuals have a spiritual belief, you know, in a higher power. So, and, and they feel that that, that higher power in some way guides them, uh, or they should in some way be. And so this is a, this is the aspect of trans self-integration. You know, what's beyond me? 
and and how do I how do I connect with um, and, and so that's yeah that's that's a uh, certainly is um, it, within the spiritual tradition and realm for a majority of people but it is a metaphysical concept right that it, it's a conception uh, that brings to and 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 Andy Newberg does such a great job of researching this he's got a book out called um, uh, why God won't go away uh, and he's and, and is, is um, uh, he's got a few other books on on um, uh, how transformation uh, uh, changes your brain and, and how God changes your brain um, but he's he's got he's basically researched the spirituality realm related to brain function and and the way in every culture and every civilization individuals develop this capacity for developing these kinds of beliefs and why do we do that you know with our brains and 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 where in the frontal lobe does that occur and he's very good with the with the, the research on this very interesting to read well you have just married two of my interests in life <laughs> psychological cognitive and now religion you know so this is very interesting um so uh what so and you talk also about in this in in the manual about um the knowing how and knowing when, and then all these different arenas. So um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Does that turn the 31 into 62 because there's the how and the when, and then maybe the five arenas multiplied by that, it's like 310. Um, oh, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we could have, we could have gone all, the, all in that direction, right? And, um, but you know, we had to be, and, and, and the reality is, you know, there's perception, feeling, thought, and act. So these are four domains of function. Um, and with, within four arenas, you know, so you have the self arena, which perceive, perceiving, feeling, thinking, and acting in relation to yourself. What do you think about yourself? How do you feel about yourself? You've got that perceiving, feeling, thinking, acting in relation to others. Um, you know, not about you, but how do you deal with others? How do you perceive about them? How do you feel about them or think about them? what do you do with them? Uh, and then there's the environment, you know, um, perceiving, feeling, thinking, acting in relation to the environment, individuals that are accident prone. Uh, if it takes you longer to find things that it would take to do the job, right? Suggests a level of lack of organization within the environment. Uh, and then there's the symbol system arena. When we do reading, writing, and, uh, and math and desktop work that we do, uh, that's a, that's a separate arena. So you can have difficulties in one of those arenas, um, you know, or 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 two, three, or, or all four of them, and you may have difficulties self-regulating just perceptions, feeling, thoughts, or actions. So there's really 16 when you think about it times the 33, right? And and um, but if you did a scale like that, it'd just be too long. And so we really had to be, you know, uh, Milt did, did a tremendous job of helping me. You know, we have to get this into a format that's going to work that parents and teachers can can complete this and understand what we're talking about. And so we really ha had to kind of settle on the idea that academic is that simple system arena of, of reading, writing, math, and what you do in school. And uh, related, you know, like attention related to academics. And then there's self. We had some items that really were self-oriented, how, you know, how you self-regulate yourself. Uh, and there were some that how you, how you regulate yourself in relation to others. And so we thought these items are important. Parents can respond to them. Teachers can respond to them effectively. They see them every day in the classroom or at home. And, and knowing how they, uh, what their perspective is on this is going to be important for identifying executive function strengths and weaknesses. So we decided to collapse the self and the social into a single arena of involvement and then to have an academic arena. So we really only have two arenas, but we, you know, the, the theory starts out with four. And when I do my clinical work, you know, I do, I do a, a, a structured uh, invent, uh, interview that really kind of gets to the heart of it. It's like, okay, now when you say these attention problems, are we talking about 
you know, what kind of attention are we talking about? What are you attending to? Uh, and so just getting very specific because the more specific I know this is a, this is how you act uh, in relation to others and it has to do with inhibition, then I'm going to be more specific with my intervention. Um, and, and I'm not going to take a shotgun approach to it. I'm just going to be, you know, very, it's, it's a bit more surgical in nature in terms of really kind of uh, giving you the opportunity to very carefully and, and effectively define what the problem is. Because the, the more specific you are with the definition of the problem, the more you can find an intervention that's going to work specifically for that problem and the more likely you're going to make change for the individual. So, you know, so the, the model is, has a lot of depth to it, but, you know, you can take it. And even and if 33, if you're intimidated by the idea of 33 executive functions, you can stay at the seven cl- level, the, the level of the seven cluster. Uh, for, you mentioned attention, you know, perceiving, focusing and sustaining three, three uh, different aspects of attention and individuals, you know, need to be using all three. And if they're not, which one is the most efficient one? Perceiving is that ability to, um, uh, to wake up your sensory system, to look, to listen. I didn't hear that. I didn't see exactly. You weren't perceiving. Um, and then, you know, look at what, listen to what, and then how long. And so uh, for a teacher in a classroom who wants to activate attention, then you appreciate the, the, the understanding that it's not enough to say, pay attention, because that's a division command, you know, the cluster command. But you want to say, uh, listen to me until I'm done talking. So the listen is perceived to me is the focus until I'm done talking is sustained. And, and when you have all three elements, uh, then you're, gonna, you're more likely to get the individual to comply with what you're asking. And then, of course, we want to get them to tell themselves that. So we move from being from externally controlling individuals with the language of these 33 so that we get them to do things when they need to do them to using bridging strategies, intervention strategies to get them to the point where I'm no longer telling you you're doing it for yourself because I taught you a strategy that you learned that enabled you to start doing it for yourself. Uh, and so that's the, the intervention model, you know, is to move away from, uh, but, but because there are these 31 uh, that are on the scale, you know, there's specific language associated with them. And it's important to understand that because you have to combine them in certain ways to get individuals to understand what it is you're looking for from them. Got you. So that's what I was going to get into next is just your vision for this. I know one of the things I've been trying to do here is really make sure to highlight the evidence-based interventions. Uh, I am working with someone from the IES uh, website. Uh, that That's the organization that uh, funds a lot of federal funded uh, research. Um, so I, I like to highlight some of the interventions that are listed on the What Works Clearinghouse. Have you found that there are some some programs that are published and evident and reviewed and evidence based that work well for actually helping to intervene? Well, the, certainly the one that's probably been the best documented uh, is at the kindergarten and, and preschool level, which is um, a, a curriculum called Tools of the Mind. And, and Tools of the Mind, um, again, it, it's, it targets preschool and kindergarten uh, students. It's a, it's a Vygotsky, uh, Vygotskyan kind of uh, uh, educational approach that's being used there. And it teaches self-regulation. So instead of teaching the basic academics, uh, they are essentially strengthening students' ability to pay attention and to engage effectively to inhibit impulsive responding. You know, all those basic attention and, and engaging appropriately uh, executive functions because, it, you know, they kind of come in at various levels in school. And the first thing we're looking for from kids is paying attention. And the second is inhibiting impulsive responding and initiating activity when we ask them to and pausing briefly and stopping ongoing activity, all those kinds of things. 
And the curriculum does a really great job of strengthening those basic attention and engagement executive functions uh, for those younger children. The idea being the, the better uh, your executive functions are and more you can self-regulate as a child uh, as in early childhood, the more likely you're going to be successful through school. Uh, because that's the foundation. You, you, everybody's going to ask you to pay attention. <laughs> From the time you enter preschool on, you'll be being asked for <laughs> to pay attention. Uh, so it's a, it's a terrific curriculum for looking into. Uh, I like Lynn Meltzer's work now. She's developing what she calls the SMARTS curriculum, which helps um, adolescents to develop those study skills and uh, test-taking skills that we think are so important. So those are two that I, I think are, are the best out there. There are some others. Uh, Sushetta Kamath has developed one called um, uh, XF, but I've not had a time to sit down and really um, review it, but I think there's a lot of potential there. So I think we're, we're on the cusp of developing um, these kinds of programs that can be used. Uh, my personal approach has always been one of uh, individualizing the issue, you know, find out what your problems are, and then there are about six or seven different, you know, uh, approaches that I use to for bridging strategies, reflective questioning, collaborative problem solving, cognitive strategy instruction, um, aligning external demands with internal desires, right? F getting the motive, finding in ways to motivate individuals to develop their self-regulation. So these are kind of approaches that are more general approaches that I use in a more eclectic approach, you know, uh, combining them when I'm working with individual clients. So I went to the website, the, the the What Works website and What Works Clearinghouse website, and they found these listed as some of the top rated, um, reviewed FBA-based interventions, positive actions, early risers. Have you heard of any of those? <laughs> I, I am not. I'm not familiar with those. So maybe those are a few to check out as well. Absolutely. Right. So I'm open the floor to questions. Um, I know Katie's been raising her hand and asking a lot of questions, trying to get her up here. Um, she's been texting me too, and I'll just go to her text. Uh, some of her questions are, let's see. Um, let's see. She says, I just want to know if age is a consideration when to administer if it's within um, the scale. So I guess are there certain parts that you give for certain ages? What age does this apply to? Yeah, well, there's, there's, um, you know, the scale is for ages five to 18. And we do have uh, parents fill out the entire scale. Now, there is a, there are focus of development, though, and I have a chart in the manual, and I have one in that PowerPoint that I sent. And as I mentioned, you know, when you enter preschool attention, the attending cluster, the executive functions within attention are the, the ones that are you know most noticed as as problematic uh, for teachers and then engaging appropriately within a few months of preschool and kindergarten uh, you move into early elementary and now you're into modulating and adjusting uh, you move to late elementary middle school people start asking you to do things like there'll be a, there'll be a test on Friday you should study so now we have uh, performing efficiently and managing memory as being you know the a, a developmental focus within that age range then you get into high school and you're, you're expected to really be able to be on board with the idea of inquiring reflectively and solving your problems. So you can see there's a shift in the in the clusters as you get older. But we do ask individuals to, you know, to report on on children's abilities to perform, to know when and to know how to do these things across all the clusters. And of course, then that's norm reference, because what we find is that uh, kindergarten, uh, kids in kindergarten, their parents will often say, no, he doesn't know how to do that, or he only does it when I tell him to. Um, and so you, you appreciate that the scores are going to be much lower, but that's norm reference uh, because we don't have a lot of expectations for preschool kin, uh, 
students to be able to do those things. Now you get to adolescence and they're expected more, but even for, even for uh, older adolescents in high school, what we found in norming the, the, the maths is that parents and teachers, uh, the average rating for high school students on things like, um, uh, like planning and organizing are executive function deficits. They can do it, but they'll only do it when I tell them to. And so that, you know, that just kind of gives us a sense of that norm referenced aspect of, of what the expectations are of parents and teachers, uh, you know, for these kinds of activities or, or reporting about, you know, do they know when or do they know how uh, across the age range. So this, the scale can be used, but, but it is, is important when you have an individual at, at a particular age range that you think about the focus of development you know, for that particular age range and, and look at the executive functions there and the ones below because, uh, I mean, you're expected to have the ability to pay attention from preschool on. And if you're in middle school and still get hits on uh, the attention section, that's pretty significant. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you're, you're really looking at, you've got to look back and say, wow, these are, these are executive deficits that really um, have probably been impacting you since you've entered school. And of course, many of those individuals, with their attention, for example, it's likely that you're going to end up with an, with an ADHD diagnosis if it persists for a long period of time. So there's definitely some um, uh, some ways to look at the scale and and move through the clusters in in more of a developmentally oriented uh, you know fashion. Got you. So oh, there goes Katie again. She's gone. Let me try to get her back up here. All right. So go ahead, Katie. Katie, yeah, unmute your mic. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she's having. Okay. Journey. I'm just like not very savvy with this app. That's Let's okay. <laughs> I guess to that point, I, I think of the parents who have, um, which I think there's a question in here if I can remember it, but the parents that continue to fall back on that they have an executive functioning problem, I guess um, they sometimes tag it as, as though it's a disability that can't be overcome or, and so I guess I just, is this to be used more as like an informational, these are where the deficit areas are compared to their typical peers and this is where we can work on, but it's not really like a disability per se. Yeah, I th well, I think you're you're right about that in the sense that um, in it helps to pinpoint areas where we should be working on this and and the severity of the problem. If parents are reporting uh, they're unable to do it, even when I assist them with it, they they just they can't do this. Sure. Um, then you know we we probably are addressing some pretty severe issues, some pretty severe difficulties, and a number of. Uh, diagnostic categories that we do identify, for example, kids on the spectrum, uh, ADHD, uh, individuals ADHD, many individuals with um, emotional disturbance, severe emotional disturbance, conduct disorder, um, severe anxiety and depression. They can all, you know, they can all impact the, uh, the ability to use your executive functions. So I think there's, uh, when you get severe ratings, you know, it, it, there are some diagnostic categories that that it would lead you into definitely, but okay. the the model is the idea though that these things can be can be improved on uh, that through educational processes. You know, if you can uh, practice in rehearsal with feedback is a really good way to to strengthen attention, to strengthen inhibition, um, and then uh, you know moving into the when you know educating individuals on picking up the signs in the environment or the situations in which these things that you know how to do you should be doing them now, right? Uh, do you recognize when you should be planning, when you should be organizing? So there are certainly good educational approaches to strengthening executive control. And, uh, and I do, I, I appreciate that the model is more the idea that these neural networks often are underutilized, underactivated. And when you get individuals to start using them more, you're gonna see strength, uh, you're gonna see development and growth in those areas. I like, you know, I like Carol Dweck's work. 
and the idea of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Yes. I have these problems and they'll never change. Well, actually, you know, there are ways to change that. And so that is, that is more the perspective here. And, and you may find some, some individuals with maturational delays. So it's not that they're not doing it. They're doing it more like someone who's much younger than them. And in that case, you know, there's going to be a lag. There's going to be maturational lag. But if we address those difficulties, we may see, you know, we may see the individual close that gap. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's very much a focus on change over time and, and working on these things uh, to affect that change and growth. And I, I guess to the follow up from your example of like high school students having a hard time planning, um, I mean, I, I work in a middle school currently, and I see that that's largely, a, we have a lot of study skills and a lot of executive functioning uh, deficit or kids that are just, that's where they struggle. And I'm wondering if the pendulum has swung that way, because it seems we've gotten away from them maybe planning, using planners, using to using our phones, to using Canvas and other electronic programs. So I'm wondering if it's more prevalent because we're not requiring the use of it over time as we maybe once were. Yeah, that, well, that can certainly affect things. Um, you know, the extent to we ask you to engage in these behaviors is going to determine the, the strength of them within the brain. Uh, you know, neuro, neural networks that are underactivated are not, are not being used effectively. It, it is kind of a use it or lose it thing. So over time, it just sometimes gets more difficult to activate the areas of the brain, um, you know, when, when we allow them to just kind of go dormant. So, yeah, it's... Um, you know, ex having some expectations for these areas and helping individuals to do it. And I found, you know, with it, with late elementary on, uh, I've been doing um, within classroom situations, modeling and cognitive strategy, strategy instruction combined through discussions with the students in the classroom. There's going to be a test next Monday. Um, we just gave you a pretest. You don't know any of the answers. That's okay. This is the material you're going to learn uh, over the next week or so. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, uh, what are you going to do between now and then so that you'll be able to answer these questions on the test? And then you ask the best students in the classroom, the ones that you know are the best students. You know, ask the teacher. She'll tell you, you know, Sally, what are you going to do? Jamal, what are you going to do? Uh, Jose, what are you going to do? And, and, I'm, and, and you tell me, and I'm going to write it down on the, in, as, as steps, steps to study. And it'll be a, a, it's like a strategy, right? Strategy for studying. And you write there what they tell you down in a series of steps. And you've got three, four of your best students telling you what they're going to do between now and, and, uh, and the test to get a good grade because they always do. And the other kids in the classroom just assume they do that because they're smart. But no, these, these are the things they do to get those good grades. And we're going to copy this, this, these strategies and give you a copy of them. And you pick one of them and use it from now till the test. And then after the test, we'll talk about it. You know, what strategy did you pick? Did it work? Would you modify it? Would you use a different one? And in two 20-minute conversations, you've opened the door. You've kind of democratized education and shown all the students in that room what the best minds in that room do to study. This is what studying is. These strategies are what people do, you know, students your age do to get success in school. And you could be as success, successful as them if you did the same thing. So we're just opening up that, that area that we never really teach. Um, even though we demand, you know, you, you should now be studying, you should now be taking tests, but we don't really teach individuals how to do it. So I found that having those discussions in classroom in an open way like that with other students making the suggestions of what to do is a much more powerful approach uh, than even curriculums for teaching study skills. Okay, thank you. And then my um, last question I think I put in the chat was in, in regards to the adaptive behavior versus cognitive functioning section of an FIE. Where would you recommend, because I, I understand what 
Nazi's saying and putting it in the adaptive functioning. And I sometimes cherry pick some information to go in there. But would this lend itself more to a cognitive functioning section yeah, of an eval? Would. It definitely would. I would say I would leave it as a separate section of executive function, as as Nausea had suggested, you know, initially, you know, you have reading, writing, math. And, and what I often do, though, see then and there, then I have executive functions related to reading, executive functions related to writing, executive functions related to math. And, and often those sections are my observations, my process oriented observations of how they perform the task. Easy things, uh, easy things wrong, hard things right. And you go, wait, if you knew the harder ones, you could have gotten the easier ones right. And you see that pattern of, of, uh, of inconsistent performance and you know, and you, and you comment on it. And then if you have the, the, uh, the mess results, you can incorporate that into, you know, a, an executive function section where you talk about it, maybe in a more general way. Yeah. And I know that in the past, for the past 15 years or so, we've been using a the cross battery by Flanagan, you know, and when it came to describing why we had inconsistent scores, it, it was always like we, we didn't describe, we didn't explain it. And so now that we're doing different assessment processes, the focus has been on explaining why you get different scores on different subtests. And maybe it's a function of what the task is asking not so much of what the we say the test is measuring. So I know this could really help us in understanding some of the tasks, a task analysis of each of the subtests and kind of explaining or bringing some integration of, you know, every time I give a timed item, every time I have a all an audio thing for them to listen to, that's harder for them to attend to. We can start talking about some of these aspects of the of each of the tasks rather than Oh well, some reason they're inconsistent and just kind of not not and and digging more to find looking for those consistencies without explaining the inconsistencies. Yeah, that's a very good point, and I and I think this this scales. You know, the these ratings that you see from parents and teachers can help you, certainly help you do that a lot. And but I, I really think you know you're you're on to something important because when I, uh, for example, I may give students a nonsense word subtest. Um, nonsense word decoding off the KTA-3, and the student just goes real fast through it and says many real words for, for nonsense words and gets a number and inconsistently responds, some right, some wrong. Um, and now that's the standardized approach, and I score it that way. But then I say, I, w- I want to go back here, and I want you to do this again. Uh, so let's just try this one more time. And every time they make a mistake, I say, no, stop. Go back, look at that one again, and look more carefully, w- look more closely, and sound it out and then they can do it. And you realize, wait, so it's not that you couldn't decode, it's that you didn't decode when you went through the first time. And you know that lack of attention to orthography sometimes, that need for me to cue you to do what you can do with your brain enabled you to do it. You know, Stop, look more carefully, uh, sound it out. You know, I'm telling you what to do and you're doing it. And, that's, and, and we, we, we often realize, wow, there's, there, you can do these things, it's just you didn't do them. Uh, and so that's that important information that we get from a process-oriented approach of testing the limits and, you know, and, and seeing what, you know, now let's, let's get our brain in the middle there and see what happens when we intervene uh, and make them pay attention to the information on the page and make them use the skills that they know how to use. Um, and and we, we begin to understand, oh, I see, there's, there's really some knowledge in your head there. It's just, you're really not very, I, you know, I, I watch kids decode a, a list of words and then open a book and start reading paragraphs and blow off decoding. 
no go backward, where is that? And they decode it. So you know how to decode, you just didn't know when you should be doing it. You didn't recognize that you didn't know that word. And so this is sort of like the kind of thing that we see, that lack of monitoring with a lot of kids with reading disorders. And that's the executive piece in addition to, you know, that, that not knowing so much about how to decode. And now once they learn how to decode, are they doing it when they, you know, that, that decoding thing, you should do it all the time now. <laughs> when right. <you> don't know. <laughs> exactly. I can see Robin getting excited here. She's a big dyslexia person. Um, so yeah, I, I, this is all really great information. Um, when you were talking about testing the limits, one of, one of the things we're being putting, getting a lot of feedback from federal government now is to make sure we have these great impact statements and need statements. So how is this disability impacting you? And then what should you do? How, what are the recommendations for what this child needs based on that? And I'm finding two things um, that in order to, one specifically to, in order to write a need statement, I'm finding that I can't write it without doing testing the limits. I mean, as a diagnostician, you're always told, like, don't, don't vary from the, you know, stick to the script and all that's good for getting your, your, um, true, your for, first score. But sure, after but after that, that. My sound came. So after that, going back and testing the limits to try to figure out, um, where your recommendations can be, it really depends on that testing the limits. And I, that has been really key thing I've learned this year for sure. More, that's the process approach has been you know, at the heart of things I've been doing, you know, the late 80s, I developed the KTA error analysis. And, um, you know, the idea of there being that we need to look at the errors that students make. Uh, it's not so much the score they get as the way they approach the problem. Um, so like, and, and, you know, how did, how did you try to get that? How did you, what, how did, what did you do uh, with that problem? And where did you make your mistakes? Uh, because if I know that I can help you learn how to fix that up and, 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 and respond appropriately. So, you know, it's uh, the way individuals approach the task is more important than the score they get. I got Alice with a question here trying to get her up to speak. Let's see, Alice, good. accept the invitation here. Yeah. Sometimes people get into a mode where they can't unmute. So um, that happens at times where they're still listening. Well, um, this has been a really enlightening hour. I really appreciate all of this. It just really made me think so much more about executive functions. I mean, I I did think about them before, but just in terms of how do I do an ADHD evaluation when I can't, when I when I don't have a lot of tools available to me. But thinking about executive functions of reading and executive functions of math and you know how it's just integrated into so many different things, executive functions of social skills, even like of, of so many aspects of what we teach. It's just all um, very important. So we got some things in the chat. I just want to make sure I go over. In the chat is a tiny URL link to Dr. McCloskey's very informative, very detailed uh, PowerPoint on this topic. Um, so check that out. Um, if you swipe right, you'll get to the chat. Um, and it's um, the tinyurl.com 2P8AX8SV. So just reading that out loud, because if some people are listening to the replay, they might not be able to see the chat. So um, just check that out one more time. It's tinyurl.com 2P8AX8SV. All right. Any last words from anyone? I'll, I'll take anything else or otherwise we will close the room down and um, see. I don't see any more questions. All right. Well, thank you also, Dr. Dean, for 
helping me with this. This has been great with everything. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nazi.